Last week, we heard from fire fishermen who use torches to attract fish at night. Their unique fishing method relies on a property of calcium carbide that causes it to ignite in water, producing a small amount of light. With this traditional fishing technique near extinction, a handful of local fishermen and researchers are working together to preserve what they see as an important cultural asset. Tonight, in part two of Fishing with Fire, we hear from these researchers and learn what they're doing to keep fire fishing alive. Jianshikai, 28, is a fire master. Five years ago, he decided to come back to Jinshan to work in a fire fishing boat. Unfortunately, his timing couldn't have been worse. In the past, when there were more fish in the water, we could pull in about 400 to 500 baskets with our nighttime and morning hauls combined. That year I came back, we were lucky to bring in about 80 baskets. The situation is really bad. Before, 80 baskets in one day would already be considered a very small amount. Nowadays, we might pull in just over 80 baskets over the course of five or six days. According to research by Professor Li Ming-an at the National Taiwan Ocean University, water temperatures along the northern coast of Taiwan have gone up quite a bit. When the water warms up, there are some fish that aren't able to deal with the higher temperatures, and they simply won't come near the shore. After the 1970s, the temperature in waters near Taiwan rose continuously, going up by as much as 2 degrees in waters near the northern coast. Researchers believe that this may have influenced the behavior of fish. To make matters worse, 80% of commercially fished species worldwide have been overfished over the past half century. For the past decade, Taiwan's near-water fisheries have seen catches drop to half previous numbers. Then, in 2016, stocks of Japanese sardinella near New Taipei's Shimen district were further impacted by an oil spill. On March 10, 2016, there was an oil spill from a TS Line's cargo ship that ran aground. Before that accident, there was a previous one in the same place near the Temple of the Eighteen Lords. Eight years before the TS Line's accident, there was a Panama-registered cargo ship that sank in that area and leaked oil. From that experience, we learned that it takes at least five years for the affected area of the ocean from such an accident to be restored, to recover. Facing the challenges of climate change, overfishing and pollution, five fishes once again find their livelihood imperiled. I told him that things are not good. It's not good to get into fisheries now. It's not just our own livelihoods. You have a crew of six, seven or eight fishers on the boat. You have to take care of those people. If you can't afford your livelihood, you will be under great stress. If you can't really make it work, don't drag others down with you. On the shoulders of this young person is the weight of six or seven families. Whether to give up or keep fighting is a tremendously difficult decision. Luckily, there are others like him who want to fight on. 
In this container is a small catch of Japanese sardinella. A small group of local firefishers hope to create a new market for the fish by working with a Japanese restaurant. By working with a local Japanese restaurant, we are developing dishes with the fish. We hope that one day it can gain a following just like the Wanli crab. When people visit New Taipei's Wanli district, they eat Wanli crab. And we hope that they will come to Jinshan to eat Japanese sardinella dishes when the fish is in season. Currently, Japanese sardinella are sold to fish farmers as feed for groupers, fetching between 4 and 5 NT per kati, about 600 grams. Some feel this to be a wasteful use of the nutritious Japanese sardinella. The fatty acids of this fish contain omega-3 in the form of EPA and DHA. These things are beneficial to the brain and nervous system. The Japanese sardinella has roughly 4.7 grams of EPA per serving and 6.5 grams of DHA. This is higher than the standard amount found in other fish including deep sea fish. Aside from its benefits when used in cuisine, Japanese sardinella can also be used in nutritional supplements. There was a period of a few years when chicken essence was a hot product. Later on this was followed by a sea bass essence, milkfish essence and a beef essence. If we could apply the same high temperature, high pressure process to Japanese sardinella to extract its essence, its value would instantly go up. We can extract the essence from the fish and the solids that are left behind are rich in protein as well as containing some calcium. Protein and calcium are nutrients that the body needs very much. We can go in the direction of a healthy seasoning, a local seasoning from Jinshan made from Japanese sardinella. If the value of Japanese sardinella goes up, fishes will no longer have to rely on large catches. In fact, there is value not only in the products that come from fire fishing, but also tourism value in the fishing experience itself. Nighttime fishing for squid and beltfish as well as barbecues at sea are all really popular. During the fire fishing season, people can get close up to enjoy this centuries-old fishing method. That's a big selling point. We arrange for tourism boats and fishing boats to have some close interaction. Fishing boats can even provide their catches to the tourist boats. Before we set an itinerary, we negotiate the distribution of profits so that a portion of profits goes to the fishing boats. Through some innovative thinking, tourism revenue gets shared with fishers so that everyone in the local community can prosper together. Since 2017, regional tourism officials have been arranging a fire fishing festival at the start of every summer. They hope to call more attention to this traditional fishing method. Sure, tourists gather, waiting eagerly to snap photos of five fishes at work. Captured within this majestic scene is a love and respect for the ocean that was shared by Jinshan's earlier inhabitants.
，他用的这种这种呃所谓的这种火把哦，其实他的那个灯光真的瓦数是很低的。The torches they use are not that bright, so that's why we say that only the fish that are willing to be caught are caught. When the school of fish is disturbed, only those that jump out of the water are caught, while the others remain under the water to continue on. That's why we say this is a friendly fishing. The government promotes environmentally friendly agriculture and offers incentives and assistance toward this aim. Fire fishing is both environmentally friendly and a part of cultural heritage. However, the government's support toward protecting this practice has not kept pace with its gradual extinction. To so far, nothing substantial has been done to protect the four remaining fire fishing boats. In accordance with regulations, the city's cultural affairs department has done three things. They've made video recordings of fire fishing and made written records of it. They've also started the third step, which is to preserve the practice, or to transform it into something more sustainable. They are still in the process of researching this last step. Protecting this important cultural asset should not be left to fishers to do themselves. If the government doesn't invest in protecting fire fishing, it may one day be nothing more than a spectacle for tourists. 早期用所谓的火把渔业，其实全世界都有。In the early days, this method of fishing with a torch was used all over the world. At present, the only place that still has fishers who use this method for income-generating fishing is Taiwan. If fire fishing is used only for performances, and if you don't pass on this tradition or rely on it for your livelihood, it will be no different from what happens to language. Left unused, it slowly disappears. If used only for performative purposes, it will be hard to preserve this tradition because it will be too far removed from everyday life. I feel there is still hope. I feel like if we gave up on it, that would be quite a pity. We hope this fishing method won't disappear in our generation. The desire to continue the hard work of preserving it is what makes these locals so special. Whatever we do, we just don't want to be wasteful. We don't want to see so many things disappear in our lifetime. Will the next generation know about fire fishing and about their ancestors' special knowledge of the sea? The passion of fishers in Jinshan today gives hope. Researchers and entrepreneurs are also searching for new opportunities in this industry. Whether their combined efforts can keep the tradition of fire fishing alive remains to be seen. Immigrants from all over the world come to Taiwan where they find work, start families, and contribute to making the island more diverse. In today's installment of An Immigrant Story, we meet Lisa Dazolfs, an American video producer, social worker, and activist. Our reporter Stephanie Yang sat down with Dazolfs to learn more about her goals for LGBT rights in Asia. Meet Jenny and Lisa a couple living in San Francisco. 
These two met in 2007. Dizols is a social worker, film producer, and activist from San Francisco. After she and her wife quit their 9-to-5 jobs, the couple set out to make a documentary. Titled Out and Around, the film seeks stories of hope to document the different groundbreaking movements for LGBT rights around the world. The documentary took the couple on a one-year journey to 15 countries across Africa, Asia, and South America to interview leaders of LGBT movements. One of the places they visited was Taiwan. Taiwan is the beacon of hope for Asia in terms of LGBT rights and community. Joining the charity bike ride was the first time that I was surrounded by people who were very supportive of who I was. And I met my wife. In 2020, Dazals moved to Taiwan with her wife and their kids. She participated in the Tour of Taiwan, a week-long bike ride around Taiwan, which inspired her to start a charity bike ride called the Asia Rainbow Ride. The ride raises money for LGBT services in Asia. We plan to continue cycling until we have full equality in all of Asia. It's a very bold uh, mission, but you know, the visibility that we have as cyclists really provide hope for people all across Taiwan who might not yet feel comfortable being LGBT and fully supported. And it's a great uh, event for people coming from outside of Taiwan, people who are silenced in other countries because they don't have the equal rights that they deserve. So uh, we will keep doing this every year, uh, raising money, building community, and creating this um, very fulfilling uh, cycling adventure together. Through her documentary and charity bike ride, Dazol's hopes to continue to raise awareness of LGBT issues in Asia. FTV reporter Stephanie Yang and Shi Bohan in Taipei. The city of Xinju is known to locals as the Windy City. Over the weekend, Xinju took advantage of those strong winds to hold its annual kite festival. Visitors were treated to views of a sky dotted with thousands of kites. In the evening, kites with LED lights made a shining debut. Kites dot the sky over Nunliao fishing port, creating a spectacular sight. Kites in the likeness of sperm whales and dolphins from a popular Korean television drama fly gracefully in the air. People underneath can't help but pick up their phones and cameras and take snaps of these scenes. I think it's the octopus. It's very long and it has LED lights. I think it's pretty amazing. That stunt kite is very cool. Conventional flat kites were no less attractive than the kites with special designs. There was a 200-metre hand-drawn squid kite, as well as kite trains that looked like a dragonfly and an eagle. The evening's highlight was remote-controlled kites with LED lights. It was the first time for them to appear in the festival. This is the sixth consecutive year that Shinju has held the event. In the first five years, it has attracted more than 300,000 people in total. On the first day on Saturday, nearly 40,000 people turned up for the event. Our theme for this year is winds and trends. We are featuring specialty kites that resemble whales, ice cream, bicycles and others. We welcome everyone to come to Xinju Fishing Port to have a good time. A kite show is also held in conjunction with the Kite Festival. Professional kite flyers showed off their skills with outsized soft kites, stunt kites and kite trains, allowing members of the public to share the fun of these spectacular wind-powered toys.
In other news, the DPP's Geelong mayoral candidate Tsai Shi-in inaugurated his campaign headquarters Sunday in the northern port city. With him were DPP's party leaders, including President Tsai, who said that family dynasties had no place in Taiwanese politics. It was an obvious jibe at the KMT opponent George Xie, who comes from a family of Geelong politicians. Tsai Shiying, the DPP's mayoral candidate for Jilung, on Sunday officially opened his campaign headquarters. President Tsai Ing-wen, incumbent mayor Lin Yo-chung, and the candidate himself Tsai Shiying all shouted Dung Swan, which is Hoklo for get elected, in a burst of campaign momentum. Supporting Tsai Shi-ying is a show of support for Lin Yochang's eight years of hard work for Jilong. We must unite all our forces and continue to keep Jilong progressing steadily on the path forward. What do you say? Jilong needs to make progress. If you want to vote for a force that can give Jilong progress, then that would be Tsai Shi-ying. As the DPP promoted its candidate Tsai Shi-ying, its politicians opened fire on his KMT opponent George Sher. We must stamp out clan politics, otherwise a family member might be running a bank while another member is the mayor. You can see how scary that can be. In terms of resources, this election is asymmetric warfare. We have a choice whether to upgrade Jilong's development or let clan politics make a comeback. In addition to attacking Tsai Shiying's opponent, President Tsai and Vice President Lai Qingde did not forget to remind the public of the year-end referendum on amending the constitution to lower the voting age from 20 to 18. We need more than 9.65 million yes votes. When I ran for re-election, I received 8.17 million votes, which was already a historic high. This will be the first ever referendum on amending the constitution. I hope the threshold can be lowered to 18 years of age. Young people can already work at the age of 16, receive a salary and pay taxes. Starting next year, 18-year-olds will be granted full capacity to make juridical acts. They can marry and have kids. It would be very strange if they're not allowed to vote. Linking up the referendum on lowering the voting age with the year-end municipal elections is a DPP strategy to get more people, particularly young people, to show up at the ballot box and cast their votes. After a magnitude 6.4 earthquake in Taidong's Guanshan Township rocked Taiwan on Saturday night, everyone breathed a sigh of relief, believing it all to be over. However, a day later, at 2.44 p.m. Sunday, buildings were shaking once again, this time even more severely. A Central Weather Bureau seismologist says Sunday's earthquake was actually the main one and that all the rest were foreshocks. Sunday's magnitude 6.8 earthquake has been the strongest to strike Taidong since 1973. It had a very shallow epicenter of only 7 kilometers in Chishang Township. Let's hear from the seismologist. Before the main earthquake, there were a total of 73 foreshocks. This was extremely rare to see, and it may have been energy that had accumulated for a very long time. We know this as there had been no major earthquake in 50 years in the area. 
Yesterday it reached a certain point where cracks started to appear geologically. This magnitude 6.8 earthquake has been the strongest earthquake this year. It was even bigger than the magnitude 6.7 quake on March 23rd. However, the aftershocks have also petered away pretty quickly. Because of its rigid geological conditions, its scope was relatively small. After the earthquake rocked Taidong, emergency calls came in one after another across the island. President Tsai Ing-wen addressed the nation at the first instance, saying that the Disaster Prevention Center had been put on highest alert and could provide immediate assistance. Premier Su Zhenchang and Interior Minister Xu Guoyong also went to the Disaster Prevention Center to take charge of operations. More than 100 soldiers based in Hualien and Taidong helped out with rescues.